He had kidney stones pulled out of his scrotum with forceps, and he was president of the United States. I don't want to hear anybody <laughs> ask me who James K. Polk is ever again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who the hell are you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. History, I'd like to follow me down the rabbit hole. History, I'd like to frankly, I want to know. It was inevitable, I guess, that eventually someone would assign me a subject that at first blush seems entirely unfuckable. <laughs> James K. Polk. He's one of a dozen or so one-term American presidents between George Washington and Abraham Lincoln that most of us forget. He didn't give great speeches. Uh, he wasn't a war hero. He and his wife, Sarah Childress, had no children. And, spoiler alert, his life after his presidential term is counted in days. But someone sure remembered him. My guest, the utterly charming and thoroughly hilarious comedian Meryl Klimo. She loves Polk. And for good reason. I'm glad to have you along for this Nerd Makes Good episode of Hilf. History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody. Let's get started. You know me very well, so this is going to be very me. But on the way here, I dipped my hair in my apple beet Whole Foods juice. And I'm like, I can't get a more like me situation right now. So Your hair, It looks good. You know, it makes you very shiny. Yeah. So I just want people at home to picture like me dripping with beet juice. Oh, how can they see anything <laughs> else now? I know you through the comedy world. Uh -huh. um, we both do stand up uh, around Los Angeles and the podcast world. Um, you have been instrumental uh -huh. in me getting this very podcast off the ground. Um, Meryl sat down next to me, looked over my shoulder, showed me how to get everything set up. So it is in large part, thanks to her, that we are here. So thank you for that. You're so welcome. Um, and I know that you travel between Los Angeles and San Diego. Uh -huh. You do various uh, podcasts. You are generally a creator of funny content <laughs> uh -huh. out in the world. Why don't you give us a little bit more about your credit? Thank you. And first off, I just wanted to say you're like the one person in my life that I'm like, yes, please do launch a podcast. <laughs> like, <laughs> person that hasn't had a podcast yet uh so yeah so so uh, some people you're like you know what i think your voice is well represented in exactly. the podcast i think that you should be a consumer right <laughs> right or I've, I've been to friends like this would make it this would make a great blog or, you know or a vlog or something why don't you try that so yeah, so I'm um, originally from the East Coast, came out here probably about like 10 or 11 years ago. And uh, really quickly, I worked at a music venue for many, many years. So I have, you know, well, well steeped experience in music marketing. And then I got into the podcasting world. I kind of saw, uh, you know, that as like the new frontier. And I got to podcast with a lot of cool musicians that were at the venue. And then I left and went on my own. And then I started uh, my podcast now, Campfire Shit Show, which is a comedy podcast and, you know, about the shit show moments of life we will definitely have you on to maybe talk about some shit show moments in history i don't i can't think of any actually <laughs> we interview a lot of people successful people about their shit show moments and how they got through it and then we have episodes of just ourselves. So Great. it's been going for about four years, and I love it. I'm a new burgeoning little stand-up comic. I, she is so funny. I love seeing Meryl. She is one of my favorite comedians around. What's the, This is, I know we're all about health. History, I'd like to fuck. Yeah. That is our primary focus. But I do want to talk briefly about the future. Just tell me what's coming up next for Meryl. What's in your future? Oh, my goodness. I think uh, that's a very good question. Lots of creative events. I'm really feeling lately the, like, producer bug you know I've, I've done some stand-up and now I feel like I've assembled this great group of people that I feel really um warm towards warmly towards and I want to be able to showcase them so it's like you know I've been performing as a podcaster and as a as a comedian for a little bit of time now and now I'm getting that like producer bug too I want to put like a show to shows together that just like wouldn't make sense you know I have every like like v v girly girls and I have like trans friends and black friends and disabled like everyone I want everyone together where it's just like you would never see these types of weirdos on a lineup but um that's kind of like a vision that just came to me not too long ago so oh, I love it I want to go to it I want to be in it you're, in it it. you're gonna be like... my, my main person in it <laughs> yeah. it sounds like uh like a human muppet show that's what I want puppets like I, hey. I want puppets and then I want just for no reason like 
spoken word but someone like weeping and then the next thing after like someone an angry comic so i like i like chaos and i feel like i would like to um do that so that's coming up and then i also have a uh, a quick plug my i have a t-shirt line called pre-canceled yes. and it's all about canceling yourself and i'm sure there's many people in history that have had to mm-hmm. cancel themselves and so just as a comic and podcaster in order to really like be okay with saying what I say and getting my voice out there. I decided I would pre-cancel myself so I couldn't be canceled. <laughs> it's a good idea. It's like a free space. I'm yeah. just holding. Like yeah, you can't yeah. dump me because I dumped you. Exactly. So if a mob comes after me, maybe I can just be like, wait, I have a t-shirt line for this. Listen, so. if you're going to attack me, you all owe me nine ninety nine. <laughs> exactly. Yes. For this t-shirt. <laughs> yep. Ladies and gentlemen, my friend Meryl Klimau assigned me President Polk. Why, Meryl? What is so fuckable? Like some of this stuff, like, listen, my previous episodes, no one's wondering what's fuckable about John Dillinger. Right. Look at, look at that chin. Right. You know what I mean? Mary Shelley. Mary, come totally on, Frank, fuckable. Come on, yeah. fuckable. DB, I mean, you know what I mean? Like these are fuckable mother. James K. Polk. <laughs> Tell me why on earth you chose this boring ass president. Okay, that that is exactly why. Because I, I feel like we grew up with all these teachings about Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And, you know, we, we learned all this and then we kind of skipped over the, the Polk days. It went like Andrew Jackson. I learned about him. And then it was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, Martin Van Buren and James K. Polk. And they were just basically lyrics to the president song. So I chose him because I mean, physically I have to admit, I do find him kind of fuckable. Uh, we might get into this, but he was kind of frail and um, had no personality. And that's kind of my type. <laughs> I, w- I wanted to learn more about him because I want to know whether he really was emotionally and um, decision wise fuckable. Because I've heard some things, you know, he can be a very controversial name when we talk about what was going on during his presidency. So I want to kind of lay it out on the line and see if, if I really do want to commit to at least one night with him. That's good. It's important to before you swipe. Yeah, before Polk. I swipe. Yeah, right now I'm just right now I'm like looking at his LinkedIn. This is me uh, stalking him. Okay, good. Well, then it will be. I will endeavor to have you swipe right on this. Side. That's my <laughs> that's my plan. Good. Um, well, I didn't know. I really started this history from the very beginning. I mean, I I had a, a cursory understanding of some of the things in the time period. Some of my previous episodes, um, I had a long history of understanding. You know, I went. Mm-hmm. I, I I came with like some previous knowledge. This subject, I came in pretty cold, and I. I got to tell you, I'm a Polk convert, girl. You are? It's so interesting. <laughs> I mean, he isn't interesting. We'll get into what is interesting about this. But it is, it was a wild, fun ride yes. to research this guy. Oh, I can't um, wait. I want to warn my listener that we, talking about the history of James K. Polk, to my friend Meryl's point about being pre-canceled, it's a landmine. Uh-huh. It's a landmine. I am going to be discussing subjects like slavery, the Trail of Tears, the Mexican-American War, patriarchy. And I just want to say from the beginning that um, I may, uh, we are comedians, we may speak very lightly or humorously about right. some of these serious topics. Please know, I understand completely in 2021 that this is serious. It's its ramifications are devastating and have devastated communities and individuals for decades. And um, and that sucks. Um, but that doesn't mean that we, we don't need to examine it and kind of talk about it. Absolutely. I'm with you too, and I think one way to to honor like you know moving forward and what had what has happened is to really learn about it and kind of to me like learn the intricacies of it and say okay this is what they were working with at that time. Now looking back, we can see some you know the craziness of of some totally. stuff. And let me also say this: this is true for all of my episodes. But um, I've done my research. I'm going to lay out mm-hmm. some of the research that I've done before we go in. So you know, I'm not just <laughs> making it up. Uh, but I welcome and encourage people to contact me with new information information with additional information with information i admitted i don't obviously get to every darn thing you know we only got an hour but uh but please be in touch with me and bring bring new stuff and correct me if i get something wrong i I like that yeah you do i like it you like like it i like the rough stuff Going in cold, uh, I started with a book. This seemed, as I looked at there, it's not a ton of books about Polk. You want to read about Lincoln, get a library right, card, yeah. right? Polk's got a few. This was the most recent. It's called Polk, The Man Who Transformed the Presidency in America by Walter R. Borneman. I will have a link to it on our thing. This shit, this is, this was about 400 pages of awesome. 
and I'm going to give you this book. No. Yeah, no, I want you Stop. to take this. It's got my writing all in it. I write little well, stupid notes and things in it, but you can have this book. Thank um, you. I'm done. That was very, very exciting. Then I watched about three three documentaries. Um, I, 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 again, will have links to those on my website. I watched a documentary about the poll, you know, his life. I watched one about the Mexican-American War. Learned mm-hmm. a lot about that, about Santa Ana. We'll talk about him. There's also a great podcast um, that has episodes devoted just to James K. Polk. Really? It's called Polk's America. Um, it is produced by the James K. Polk House and Museum. They have just great topics and great guests. And if, if you get a hard-on for Polk, man, head on over there and listen to their podcast. It's great. Tell me what you know, Meryl. Going into this history, what do you know about James K. Polk? Okay, I, I, I didn't do my normal thing. I wanted to like create a Google Doc and be like, I'm going to study so much. But I'm like, let me just truthfully go in with the little that I know about him and have you teach me. Let's Polk. That's Polkus. So because the man of James K. Polk is interesting, but he's interesting because of what happened around him. There are individuals in history that, and we're going to cover some of them, that they themselves, their biography, what they've done, what they've seen, who they've met, how they feel is the history. Mm-hmm. James K. Polk is like the center of a wheel. And like from him, a lot of interesting things happen. But like he himself is just this mullet wearing pure side. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, he didn't give a lot of big, glorious speeches. He didn't hard, you know, strong arm people into policies. He didn't have a, a big physical presence. He didn't have any children. He ran, you know. Yeah. So, no dogs. That I thought that was the most. He, no pets. That, he didn't have any pets. Oh, either. he was yeah. a. Um, a Scorpio born November 2nd. I didn't know that. You care so much about astrology. I know. It's so feel stupid. Free, feel free to throw that in. <laughs> oh, and generally speaking, throughout this, feel free to stop me. Ask questions. Okay. Uh, you know, we can dial it. But in this, in this history, um, what I'm basically going to do is kind of put Polk up against a wall, mm-hmm. <laughs> have him stand there real still. Then I'm going to spray a bunch of information all around him. And by the end of this podcast, when we sort of peel it away, we're going to see a really good portrait love of the it. man that's kind of my my idea and i'm gonna do that um through what i think are the most fuckable people and stories around this guy that he impacted that impacted him and but i am gonna start the first story um of this hilf podcast about polk is about the man himself we are gonna start with your selection <laughs> the one that you really wanted to fuck the most daddy james k polk okay this story uh is is uh i call this guy's got stones Okay, so James K. Polk uh, is born in Kentucky, but is, as a young kid moves to Tennessee, and he's got a gazillion brothers and sisters, and he himself is just not the rough and tumble Wild West guy. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Born in a log cabin, but he's frail. He's weak. He's sick all the time. He has to be inside all the time with his mom taking care of him, and his brothers and sisters are kind of doing the like plow the field, lift the thing, but he's just in, frail all the time. That's fuckable to me too. He's in bed, girl. Mm, yeah. He spends a lot of time in bed. And uh, but it's bad, and it turns out they diagnose it as urinary tract stones, kidney stones, bladder stones. Whether or not you've experienced this or know what it is, they're famously painful. The the bottom line Mm -hmm. is it's crystallized pieces with sharp ass edges trying to move through your urinary tract, and that hurts, and it can and you can die. And it but I remember a guy actually, I knew a guy six five, was a bouncer in the Highlands of Scotland got bl- bladder stones and turned white and blubbered and hit the ground hard. Like these things really? are B-A-D, yeah. bad, bad, bad. Like, and you could like pass them. You have to be in the oh bathtub God. to pass them or something. Awful. If yeah. you have to pass them. They are Ugh. all consistently compared to childbirth. So before I give him too much credit, like every woman in this period also endured. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Something. But these kids, no, no joke. It got so bad, in fact, that in 1812, James's dad, Samuel, puts him in a makeshift bed in the back of a covered wagon and sets out for an 800-mile journey to see uh, this famous doctor in Philadelphia. He is Dr. Philip Singh Physic. He's the father of modern surgery. He's the greatest, you know, surgeon. And even though it's 1812, i.e. the War of 1812, (laughs) which which, um, I like to call the Revolutionary War, too, because it's when Britain came back at the colonies to be like, for real this time. Right. And spoiler alert, we win, but they do burn down the White House. So it's, it's the War of 18. So in the middle of the War of 1812, he takes his six, 17 year old son in this covered wagon to go see this doctor. They don't get very far. OK, because I, I mean, I don't think bopping around in the back of this thing mm-hmm. in, in the best of times is, is a good time. But he it becomes very apparent to everybody very quickly that 
James is going to die. Oh my God. And he's not going to make it. So instead of going to the greatest physician in the world, they stop in Danville, Kentucky and see Dr. Ephraim McDowell and James K. Polk gets urinary tract surgery on this guy's kitchen table. They use brandy as the only anesthesia. Three guys have to hold him down. And here's what they do. The doctor goes through his... Buckle up. The doctor goes through his scrotum into his urinary tract and pulls the stones out with forceps. Oh... And talk about, you know, one of your past episodes was Frankenstein, too. I feel like all the the surgical tools back in that day yeah. looked like it could have been in the Frankenstein lab. Oh, yeah. And yeah. They didn't even wash their hands yet. Oh. Like, we don't know about washing our hands yet, dude. Okay, so he survives and bounces back, feels good. Like, better than ever goes to college. Now, uh-huh. I just want to start with this story, you know, because we're not going to, there's a few other things about Polk we get to, but I want to start with that story because holy shit, he had kidney stones pulled out of his scrotum with forceps and he was president of the United States. I don't want to hear anybody (laughs) ask me who James K. Polk is ever again. You know what I mean? Yeah. Who the hell are you? Next time we complain about having a headache or something, it's like, is your scrotum being opened while you're just sipping brandy? Possibly. I don't know if he was <laughs> sipping the brandy. Oh. I, doubt, I doubt that he was like, ooh, one moment, doctor. I must pinky up. Okay, carry on. Um, okay, so that's our man, James K. Polk, and that's an early formative thing. Okay, he goes on to be in law school, and you mentioned the Jacksonian period. So Jackson's from Tennessee, too. Okay, and because James K. Polk's dad, Sam, is a land speculator, they're they're connected to Tennessee politics and Tennessee people. They get ingratiated into the Jackson family. Uh-huh. Sarah Childress is like a daughter to the Jacksons. They love her. And so James becomes very much like a son. And the Jacksons don't have any kids either. So their relationships with the young people that they feel like they can kind of foster are very much like a father-son relationship. So much so that once Polk starts his political career, first as a senator and a governor, he's nicknamed Young Hickory. Andrew Jackson's nickname was Old Hickory. So the association between these two and how much Jackson really ushered him through a lot of his political life is like well known. So Jackson was the ninth president um, and he is complicated. They gave him the name Old Hickory and he became famous because of his battles with the Native Americans, primarily um, in the battles in Florida and New Orleans. He became very famous for beating back these awful Indians. Okay, I say that because that was the perspective of the time. Don't cancel me. I understand. <laughs> I'm giving you kind of what was what was the prevailing understanding at the time is that this guy can really beat back, right? And and to the point where he instituted the Native American relocation, Ooh. which is now known as the Trail of Tears, and it was taking Native peoples from the lands that we had quote unquote conquered and forcing them to move with their families by foot um, across the United States into often desolate. Uh, unusable areas uh-huh. that we designated as their reservations. And um, it was the beginning of a really terrible uh, process in history. He was Andrew Jackson much hated at the time as well. As much as he was loved and was considered a kingmaker, he was hated at his time too. It wasn't really for the Trail of Tears though. That wasn't why people hated him. They didn't like him because they thought he was a little too powerful. They didn't like this, his sort of federal uh, strong, you know, strong federal uh, position, even though there was this kind of conflict of interest between he was very into states rights, but as the president, anything he did was coming from the federal government. So there was like all this kind of complicated stuff. So the party that forms to go against Jackson, the Whigs, okay, yeah, don't exist until Jackson. They are a response to Jackson. Okay, the Whigs, okay. The, the central tenant of the Whigs is screw Jackson. We hate Jackson. That's why they called themselves the Whigs. Was because the Whig Party in Britain was an anti-monarchy, anti-king party. Okay, so they yeah. were naming themselves after this anti-king party because that's the guy that they're generally against. And the guy who's sort of at the helm of the Whigs is a guy named Henry Clay. They and seem your, wild. Face, your face lit up. I, you had said something about like, ooh, Clay. Yeah. Like, what is wrong with you, Meryl? Because I feel like maybe I, I, was, I was trying to think maybe I would join the Whigs because I'm a conspiracy theorist now and I know they were kind of like anti-Masonic, you know, and I'm like, maybe I would be a Whig. Would women be allowed to be in the Whigs? 
Um, yeah, a woman could say she was a wig. She couldn't vote or I'd run be a for wig office. Okay. You, could, you could be like, yeah, I like that and wear their buttons. But okay, I'd probably do that. <laughs> I'd proudly sport a wig button. And the other big sticking point that the wigs have against Jackson is these tariffs. It's not very fuckable. So I'm going to give you like a really <laughs> brief thing about like tax. It's fun. But the, the bottom line is what you tax is always a question. It was the whole reason we had the Revolutionary War. It was every reason why we had independence in the first place. And so every time then the now independent American government tried to figure out how to tax the American people, it was always a shit show. Because they'd be like, we don't do taxes. America's like, no, we do. We just didn't want to pay taxes to them. Yeah. But like yeah, we yeah. have to pay for shit. And every time they'd be like, okay, fine, we'll tax... <laughs> Then fill in the blank. And every time they said, okay, we'll tax lumber. No. We'll tax tobacco. No. We'll tax cotton. No. We'll tax imports. No. We'll tax... Everybody has a vested interest. It screws somebody over. Somebody is always getting at a detriment. And so there was always this uproar. And that was basically what it came down to, to the Whigs and Jackson, was like how their taxes worked out. The next story that I want to tell you to fill out the Polk profile, I call it Tyler or sometimes the wig wears you. <laughs> okay. So the U.S. at this time, to give you the landscape, only has 26 states. Pretty much everything west of Ohio is the unorganized territory. And then Europe still owns a lot of the continental United States. Spain owned Florida and Texas for a hot minute. Um, the, the Southwest, which we had purchased in the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, then we sold a chunk of it, including Texas, to Spain. And Spain <laughs> owned all of Texas and all of Mexico because that was their colony. Spain had colonized Mexico. England had colonized America. France had colonized Canada. That's why we speak French and Quebec and English here. <laughs> Spanish, right? You know the deal. And we actually shared Oregon with Britain. Even though we had just had two major wars between Captain Cook and Vancouver, there was some rights to Oregon, and we kind of shared it. Like, it was like this compromise that we had <laughs> like with Oregon. Like, you take Brown it on the weekends. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and we're also just divided internally, okay? We have, everyone's fighting about slavery. There are the abolitionists in the North, and you have slaveholders in the South, and you have the Missouri Compromise. Some of the folks in the United States are like, we got to expand all the way to California, get this whole continent into the United States, manifest destiny, Ugh. man, gobble, gobble, take it all. And then there are people who are like, are you nuts? Like, we can hardly contain New England. Like, it would be, we will be destroyed. We will be overrun and we will run ourselves thin. We will be Rome if we try to go all the way to California right now. And all of that hinges on taxes. Who's going to pay for this war? Who's going to pay for all of this? Exp you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. How are you going to do it? Um, so there's, there's division and there is conflict everywhere all the time. Okay, enter the year 1840. We have a brand new presidential election. We've got Martin Van Buren, who was Andrew Jackson's vice president. Uh -huh. um, and he had won his first term and had served his first term and was doing great. This is his reelection. And the Whigs are like, fuck this guy. Right? Yeah. And we know exactly we're going to run a Bafo Sacco ticket in 1840. It's William Henry Harrison and John Tyler, and they had this great catchphrase, tip a canoe and Tyler too, which who cares, right? Like we don't know. Tip a canoe was a battle against the Native Americans that William Henry Harrison had famously won in the previous wars, 1812, some previous war, and everybody loved him. He was a very famous, tip a canoe was like a big battle that everyone remembered. And John Tyler, his dad was a founding father. But tip a canoe and Tyler too was this catchphrase. And then the newspapers did their thing because like newspaper print is already doing what media, lowercase italics media does. And they ran this story about Tippecanoe and Tyler too, that these guys painted them as these just really common man huckabucks. And they had said there was a quote, whether true or not, that said they'd rather be sitting around drinking hard cider than doing all this politicking. And it just caught on and the people loved it. And Martin Van Buren, the red fox, he's got these scary ass sideburns <laughs> and just like perpetual scowl. Anyway, fucking they win against all odds. Tippecanoe and Tyler too, the first <laughs> wigs, the wigs who were like, up yours, Jackson, are in. Yeah. And they're like, yes, they're so excited. Henry Clay's just like, yeah, you know. And 30 days later, William Henry Harrison dies. Really? <laughs> and it's Vice President Tyler, who's a wig. Uh-huh. But like, his heart isn't really in it. He, and you know, he was a Democrat. He, he liked Jackson, but then he kind of had like a little thing with Jackson and political parties just weren't as like 
hard. Like people could kind of move around based on what was convenient yeah. for him. And Henry Clay, who founded the Whigs, no, he's got a wig in the White House is like, Tyler, here's what I want. I want a federal bank. I want, he starts making all these lists and Tyler's like, nah, I don't like any of that stuff. And the Whigs and Henry Clay are like, wait, what? And he's like, I'm not gonna do any of that. He denies all of these Except what they fought against, basically, too. Yeah, you don't want to turn into what you're fighting against, you know? Well, exa- well, I mean, exactly. But I don't think he, he also disagreed with these things. Like, yeah, they were sort yeah, of yeah. the tenants of the Whig platform. And he was like, I never really cared. Like, <laughs> sorry, guys. Oh, I love it. Yeah, so he's super into it. But then he realizes a couple of years into his term that he's never going to get elected again. Like, the Whigs hate his guts and they won't have him back. Uh-huh. And the Democrats hate his guts because he was took it away from Van Buren. And so he's like, ah... Well, I have this. I have these couple of years. And one of the only things he can do, but without everybody telling him no and voting against it, is just get a bunch of guns and get a bunch of weapons because, um, you know, th- this, we know we're going to war. Like I said, it's going to be a civil war. It's going to be a war with Mexico. It's going to be a war with the UK. It's going to be a war. We don't know who. Mm-hmm. We're, but, like, weapons are a good investment. And primarily, they could get passed through Congress really easily because even if it's sticky to declare war, that you want to protect the troops, that we're going to get whatever we need to f- protect ourselves, we will approve and say yes to. So um, Tyler gets a bunch of fucking guts, right? And um, one of the things that uh, his secretary of the Navy gets this giant ass iron frigate called the Princeton. And he's got this huge heart on for this boat. And he should, because it's a glorious ass boat. It's very modern. I- I'm into boats. I used uh-huh. to live, I lived aboard a boat for nine years on the Mississippi River. And this boat that we're talking about, the Princeton, has a very new modern propeller system. It's a screw propeller instead of a paddle wheel, so it can go really fast. It's got like 24 pivoting guns on each side and these two big-ass guns, one on the fore called the Peacemaker and one on the aft called the Oregonian. And these fucking things can fire giant-ass cannons like three miles. Huge, right? So the Secretary of the Navy, uh, Upshur, is like, everybody get on the Princeton. I'm going to show up. The whole cabinet, the president, all all the cabinet's girlfriends and wives get aboard this giant boat. They fire that peacemaker a couple times. It's so loud. It's so exciting. They go below decks. They have lunch. Make a couple speeches as you do, right? There's a band. Then before they disembark, Upshur's like, who wants to go fire the guns? A couple more times. Like, let's fire the guns one more time, <laughs> right? They're on the Potomac. They're kind of near Mount Vernon. Everyone's very excited. And so a bunch of them go up to fire the guns again. And when they do, there's a breach in the gun, in the peacemaker. Hmm. Irony of uh-huh. irony. A giant explosion. And when the dust settles, eight people are dead, including the Secretary of the Navy, Upshur, and including the Secretary of State. Oh my gosh. Tyler was aboard, but he was down. Get this. He was below decks listening to music. He wanted to finish. He wanted to finish listening to the band, which is the only reason he wasn't up there. So don't tell me the arts can't save your life. Wow. Crazy, right? Do you think, I mean, it was just, it wasn't foul play or anything. It was just an accident. Total accident. Okay. Total accident. In fact, nobody even, there is no record of anyone saying it was sabotage or enemy attack. It's just the gun, the, that particular gun, the Oregonian, didn't have this reinforcement around it that oh. the other gun did. And that was where the breach happened. And it was just a... Damn. Okay. So you can imagine, I mean, always in here, all of a sudden, <laughs> eight members of the, you know, eight people mm-hmm. are dead, including the Secretary, Secretary of Navy. Insane. What's going to happen next? I'll tell you what's going to happen next. Okay. Do you have any questions at this point? No, maybe just the thought that ran through is I'm imagining what it's like in that era when something like that happens compared to now. Because, you know, if that happened today, we would have CNN and everyone on it within minutes. And that would be all over the paper, all over Facebook. But it's funny to not funny, but it's interesting to me to think about some an event like that happening with eight people dying and then it taking time to get back to the media, the newspaper telling people and then like it rippling through people. It might might have even taken like a week or two for people to even hear that, to begin to hear about it. That's exactly right, Meryl. And how information traveled is a key part of this history. If you're trying to get a message from Washington, D.C. to anywhere west of Ohio, especially if you're trying to get all the way to California, which they are in a little bit, it takes two to three weeks <laughs> for a message to get there. And that's hauling ass. Yeah. Right. Um, and the way that information traveled was obviously written and stuff and, you know, um, letters, newspaper accounts. There's no radio yet, but we do have right around this time Morse 
code. Um, you know, to, and so they do right around the time of the election, there is the ability to get some information transmitted incredibly quickly through Morse code. There are like two or three stations set up where people can read it and send it. And those lines, incidentally, later when we build the railroad, there is a connection between where the railroad goes, these Morse code lines can follow because okay. you've already cleared the timber, you've already cleared the whatever. So the, the Morse code tends to follow the railroad as does information word of mouth. And that also explains sort of what's happening West. So I, t I told you before that at this point, pretty much everything West of Ohio, it's just to the average American person living in the East coast and along the Eastern side, everything West of Ohio is a meat grinder. It is crazy forests, rocky mountains, wild rivers, angry Native Americans, and probably the literal devil. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah, know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. After we bought the Western territory from France in the Louisiana Purchase, we sold it to Spain. Spain now has Texas and everything south, and, you know, including Mexico. And then Mexico fights and wins their independence from Spain. So we had just tried to figure out if we could get Texas back. We kind of already knew we wanted to carve out this area that was part of the Louisiana Purchase, mm -hmm. that along the Rio Grande, and that we wanted it. And we were trying to negotiate that with Spain, and Spain was like, fuck, no. <laughs> they barely gave us Florida not long before that, and they were like, no. You, not only can you not have Texas, if you immigrate there, we'll kick your ass. You're not welcome there. And then Mexico won their independence from Spain. Yay! And Mexico was like, we love the Americans. Also, we're totally alike. Because they love us, we love them. We have both just fought off our European colonizers, and this is going to be a rock'em, sock'em, baffo buddy comedy from here <laughs> into the rest of history. We are not only going to welcome Americans to come into Ooh. Texas, we're everybody. We want Mexicans to move up there. We want Europeans to come here. We want Americans to come down. We Because this will make a strong port and this excellent center for mm -hmm. trade. And oh my God. All of a sudden, it's all Americans. Americans come into Texas, and they are fuckers about it. They are not buying the land from Mexico. They're not, like, trying to buy uh. it. But they're not paying taxes to Mexico when they move there. And they're cunts when the Mexican officials come and start trying to be like, excuse us, this is ours. They're like, no, it's not. So, you know, and, and by yeah. the time Mexico realizes that the Americans are not awesome, it's too late. And so Santa Ana, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana, the president of Mexico, goes up to there to crack some skulls, right? Remember the Alamo? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I feel like it's when, if you invite someone over to a party and you're like, oh, just come over at seven, I'll have like wine and cheese for you. And then they come over and then they pee on your floor. And then they're like, actually, I live here now, bitch. And then, right. then you're like, I just want to have you over for wine yeah. and crackers until 10 p.m. And then you start fighting and then... Yeah. You just, then you unfollow each other on Facebook. Totally out of bounds. I mean, Mexico, like, build the fucking wall. Yeah. That's probably what Mexico was thinking, yes. right? So you remember the Alamo. Most people do. If you don't, how dare you? The Alamo was, according to Americans, this, like, last noble stand of Americans against Mexican aggression. But it was, in fact, absolutely Mexican territory. Wow. Internationally recognized. Like, if you asked anyone in the world who owns this property, they could take a look at the treaties and the thing, everything signed up to that point and be like, legally, it absolutely belongs to Mexico. Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana isn't nice about it. Like, he does slaughter, you know, people big time. And after he, the dust settles from the Alamo, Davy Crockett is dead. Everybody's dead. Antonio de Santa Ana goes off with his troops and takes a nap and is captured. By Sam Houston. Do you know who Sam Houston is? No. Mm. He sounds fuckable. <gasps> Girl, this is another one. He <laughs> could have an episode all his own. Okay, Sam Houston, real quick. This kid, born, he's got a gazillion brothers and sisters. He's kind of abandoned as a kid. So he lives with the Cherokee Indians. And when I say lives with them, I mean lived with them. They, they called him the Raven. Later on in his life, he is an official sanctified member of the tribe and speaks for them with their blessing. After a while, though, he leaves uh, kind of this, this rural life to try Washington, D.C., to try to be a politician. And he does pretty well early on. He falls in love and he gets married. 
But then his hot 23-year-old wife, months after they get married, starts dating, seeing, flirting with, maybe having sex. Doubt it got that serious with an ex. (gasps) Sam Houston finds out he's devastated. He's heartbroken. There's public scandal. There's accusations. There's tears. There's divorce. (gasps) Sam goes back into the Wild West and abandons Washington. I was thinking, too, the cheating back then, they were Morse coding with someone else. (laughs) (laughs) They were really like... I want to, I want to, I want to. Uh, uh, yeah. So Sam Houston, brokenhearted, leaves Washington to go back and live in the Wild West. He is living in Texas, and he's part of this, uh, you know, ragtag unit that stumbles upon a sleeping Santa Anna, takes him prisoner, forces Santa Anna to sign a, a document that says Texas is now independent. Mexico gives up Texas, and then they let him go. And now Sam Houston is the president of the independent territory of Texas. And Mexico didn't get anything really in, in return, not even a parting gift? I, not at that time, no. We we offered, kept offering to buy it, mm-hmm. and, it was, uh, and they needed the money. But, you know, there's a lot uh, on the line. But this is now Sam Houston is the president of this territory, uh, fantastic, and is immediately like, shit, shit, <laughs> right? Look at a map. He's like, oh, my God, something's got to happen. We have no infrastructure. We have no exports we have no imports we have no army we have no guns and mexico's gonna come back and try to get it and don't forget spain is still over there in cuba (laughs) yeah right there and they could be like oh wait really because we could come back and the uk is still sort of up there and wouldn't it just be great if they could get everything from the gulf of mexico up to oregon and so sam houston immediately is like hey you guys annex us annex us basically u.s you've got to come get me like we're independent now uh-huh. you gotta come get me <laughs> he even writes he's like i'm a bride at the altar i'm really waiting. like oh yeah he's he's like what's up because he needs at the very least he needs someone to defend them against yeah. the mexicans when they definitely come back to be like ours right here's the big issue what we do with texas if we annex texas is everything it's every issue it is slavery because Texas is, of course, south of the Missouri Compromise line. So if we make that a state, it, what, is going to be a slave-owning state? And it's so fucking big. It's, it's bigger than all of New England. So who's to say they don't break that Texas up into seven states? Mm. And all of those are slave states. And all of those states now have representatives in Congress. And they're all going to vote to make the whole country. So the abolitionists... And people who have an interest in slavery are suddenly very, very interested in what happens for Texas. That, of course, goes, and we're going to now have a war. Like, what if we annex Texas, in addition to the slavery question, now we're definitely going to war with Mexico. We're just declaring war on Mexico. And taxes, again, how are we going to pay for all this stuff? So it is now the issue. Are we going to annex Texas or not becomes this huge issue. And believe it or not, in 1844, they had it worked out through the great politicking uh-huh. and negotiation and back deals and side deals. And how are we going to do it? We've kind of got like, yeah, how we're going to do it, how we're going to do it peacefully. We're going to offer it. Everybody's got it worked out. And then Mr. Secretary Upshur himself, Mr. Everybody come aboard and look at my giant guns, gets himself blown up. And he was the one who had organized this whole thing. Tyler appoints a new secretary of the Navy, this guy named Calhoun. Calhoun sucks. Calhoun's an idiot. Calhoun is a slave-owning, slavery-loving wig who, once he becomes secretary of the Navy, totally steps in it, writes this very public letter to Britain basically saying... We totally have to annex Texas because then we can have a bunch of slave states and slavery is really important. Like, And so people immediately are like, fuck. So now the issue comes back. We almost had it settled. And now as the presidential election of 1844 begins, Mm. the only issue, the only question is what are you going to do about Texas? You cannot get away from it. It will answer slavery, taxes, expansionist, everything I need to know. I will, an- I will know when you yeah. tell me what you are going to do about annexing Texas. Okay. Ooh. Okay. <laughs> so we get into the presidential election of 1844 begins, and it's a foregone conclusion going in that Martin Van Buren, this, this guy, is going to come back, right? Because he lost to William Henry Harrison, mm-hmm. Tippecanoe, and Taylor, T- not again. So Van Buren's going to come in, take his rightful place back as president, and he's going to go against Henry Clay, who ain't given the wigs to nobody else but himself. From now on, he's not going to trust anyone else. But So everyone's like, okay, so basically when we get into 1844, it's going to be Van Buren and Clay. Okay, so we go into the nomination process for the Democrats, and everyone's pretty much ready for Van Buren to go in. But right before they vote, they vote one other thing. They're like, by what majority does the nominee need to win? 
and they decide they need to win by a two-thirds majority. Okay, so they go and cast their votes, and Van Buren does not have a two-thirds majority. He has a majority. He's definitely the preferred guy, but it's not a two-thirds majority. I'm like, fuck. So the way it works then, they throw in other names, and they keep doing all of these, okay, what about this guy, and this guy, and they do, and then vote, and they could, they can't get to a two-thirds majority on anybody. And now the crazy house of cards shit starts happening. What about this guy? What about this guy? <sighs> Enter our man, James K. Polk. One of the reasons why is because Martin Van Buren, right, and Henry Clay had both written a letter that was published on the same day, which is impossible. Like, yeah. And both of them said that they are against annexing Texas. So now, before the nomination even started, people were like, they're not that different. These two candidates uh-huh. are just so similar. So all of a sudden, somebody goes, well, what about Polk? He wrote a letter that was printed before any of this happened that said he was very much for annexing Texas. And that's what the majority wants. And he's, he's nobody hates him, right? He, what about him? And everyone's like, Polk? <laughs> Polk? <laughs> what about who? And the mumbling starts. And they're like, you know what? This guy's a pair of khakis. He's going to prom with your hot cousin. He's a Prius. He's not what you want. It's not what you were looking for, but it's not bad. Right. It's pretty good. And son of a bitch, he gets the two-thirds majority. And the next day, we realize that we are going to have our presidential election between James K. Polk and Henry Clay. Oh, my God. And Henry Clay's got a huge hard-on for this because it's young Hickory, man. Yeah. You don't know who Polk is. Henry Clay knows who Polk is. He's Andrew Jackson's little man. Uh-huh. And it's going to be a joy to beat him in this presidential election. And he almost does. And he almost would have. But New York had a third-party candidate running. There's a third party in all this, a guy named Birney. He's part of the New Liberty Party. He's very interesting. He's a former slave owner turned hardcore abolitionist. He is interesting enough to pull a lot of votes out of New York, which has an enormous number of electoral votes. Those votes probably would have gone to Henry Clay. Instead, they go to this Birney guy, and oh my god, James K. Polk is president of the United States. I could just imagine so many people like Okay, <laughs> we didn't expect this. Literally, it was the who. I mean, that was yeah. uh, the headlines are who Polk is president? Question mark. There's headlines in Britain that called him Polka, oh. and they can't tell. But historians are like, were they making fun of him? Which why not? But or did they just not? Wow. No. And thus begins decades of people asking. Who the hell is James K. Polk? And that is where I am going to take a break, part one. Meryl, how you doing? I'm so good. I just wanted to let people know how impressed I am with you. She doesn't, you guys, she doesn't even really look at her computer. She has some notes, but the whole time you're making eye contact with me while naming, like, the eighth secretary of the state that got shot. Like, I am beyond impressed. Yeah, that's all I got to say. Well, thanks. You can imagine how irritating it is, though, if I get you cornered in a party. Like this, like this podcast is absolutely saving my my social life because people, they'll nod and be interested and then be like, oh, no. I love this. She never stops. I, I think your audience would agree with me that we'd rather have conversations like this than like, how's work? What are you up to? I'd rather be like, you know, William Henry Harrison did what? Like, so, yeah. OK, we'll take a little break, but I'm so impressed. Oh, thank you so much. All right, well, maybe I can't corner you at a party, but we can still talk. Hey, if you have an idea or question or just another cool tidbit that you think I should know about, please reach out to me at Hilf Podcast or email at hilfpodcast at gmail.com. And as always. Do you ever talk about what position you picture fucking them in history? Oh, that's an interesting question. I think with Polk, hmm. I think Polk, it's a nice, respectful missionary. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'd hold on to that mullet with both hands. Yeah. And I'd get mine. And we know he has a um a looser scrotum. 
just because mm-hmm. of some surgery before. So yeah, so we I, know that he can handle it. Yeah. I know that what I know Ooh. is that he can really handle it yeah. if I if I go for it. I think I picture myself, and we'll get into her. No pun intended, but I, I picture myself maybe having a threesome with uh, him and Sarah. Sarah Childress. Yeah, she seems kind of. I think she'd be down. Daddy is too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, she'd be down. <laughs> Who wouldn't? You're charming. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so when last we left our history, um, we have. Uh, the unlikely, the dark horse candidate, everyone's favorite pair of khakis. <laughs> That's so James, funny. James K. Polk is now president of the United States. Um, and just like now, you've got that that goofy period between being elected and being inaugurated where, right, January 6th, where it's like, we, we, it's kind of an exciting, like, what's going to happen, you know? And, um, and Congress is just beating their collective meat <laughs> over how to handle the annexation of Texas, which the election of, of James K. Polk has pretty much solidified it's what the people want. Where we know he's run on the fact that he's going to do it. People want him to do it. So they're already trying to figure out how are we going to move forward with annexing Texas. And there's a debate. And it's, you know, are we going to go real nice and slow and start with a treaty and offer Mexico some money and take our time and do it peacefully? Or are we just like going to do it? Yeah. Just like take it, name it. And if we are going to name it a state, how are we, are we going to tax it? Are we going to make it a slate? sticky icky yucky politics stuff and no one is willing to do anything hard or anything important and it's a mess polk rides in to washington dc uh getting the house ready you know kind of getting himself ready and the the congress is like what should we do what do you want to like how should we move forward and all the complications and polk goes you know what i have an idea how about you guys just pick your two favorite strategies and then say the president will pick his favorite you know, mm-hmm. you guys don't have to decide what you want. Just pick two that you're that everyone can agree on. Then I'll I'll pick which I one. I like that. Right? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, they do. They vote to agree to do that, and then they do that. But guess what? Tyler's still president. <laughs> so Tyler is sitting at his desk, getting his bags packed, ready to go, because he he's also like, "Good luck, Polk. Being president sucks." Yeah. You know. And he's like, "Oh, the president gets to decide, huh? That's me. I say annex the bitch right now. Make it a state. Bye bye." And he signs it, and it's done. Whoa! He drops the mic and rides the fuck out of D.C. like peace, right? How Isn't did they it? Don't think that through. That it was going to be him that made the decision. It's hard to say. If that pissed off Polk, there's no record of it. Mm-hmm. So then, as a historian, you start to go, "Seems awfully convenient that he doesn't have to do the hard stuff." Yeah. Tyler always mm. wanted to. Tyler always wanted to annex Texas. Polk was like, go ahead and do it. Then I don't have to and it's done. I can start fresh. Wow. You know, maybe. I mean, there's no record of that either, but <laughs> in any event, ooh, so impressive. So Polk's now coming in. He's present and he, here are his plans. And he says it very clearly in his inaugural address. Like he lays it out. I am going to define Texas up to the Rio Grande. Because that, that's the other thing. Like all this talk about Texas. Should we annex Texas? Where is that going to Sam Houston's president of Texas? We never agreed on what exactly texas was the mexicans said it it was at the nueces river which is pretty far east and the americans said it was at the rio grande river which is a lot better it's a boss ass river and it goes all the way to the pacific coast so it would draw the line all the way to california right and so we already know that above and beyond everything else is like what's texas Right. So he's like, I'm going to get Texas to the Rio Grande all the way to California. I'm also going to get Oregon from Britain. I'm going to get Texas and California from Mexico. And I'm going to just rewrite the way taxes work. And everyone's like, shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's that, got a plan. Get that tattered scrotum up. Yeah. Pull the long bits of your hair back. Let's get to work. Yeah. We get Oregon pretty quickly and without much conflict. They get Vancouver Island, right? Oh, but we, damn it. I know. So but beautiful. all those ports and all those fabulous beaver pelts and all the wonderful things that are happening up there are now secured for the United States. Yay, that happens fairly early and fairly quickly. Then he's like, okay, now we got to get the Rio Grande up to the Rio Grande. How do we do that? So he sends down General Zachary Taylor and he's like, Basically, get down there into that disputed territory, the territory between the Nueces and the Rio Grande, where Mexico says it's theirs and we say it's ours, and hang out there, see what happens. Pick a fight. (laughs) Right? And he does. And as soon as Mexico attacks on the disputed ground, uh, Zachary Taylor sends a message to Polk that says, it's on. War's on, let's dance. And Polk says to Congress, war's on, let's dance, which is huge. That's not how you declare war. Congress declares war. 
that's in the constitution and that's how it's always uh-huh. been done. It's a big, big deal for the president to tell Congress we're at war. Like that is almost a coup. Really? But you know, a pair of khakis can't, you know, it's, it's one of the things Polk had is he was so not that guy that yeah. when something like that happened, everyone was like, Oh, Oh, well then we should go and fight. Then if it's, a, I mean, it just happened later. There's pushback and we'll talk about that. But at first they're like, okay. And, and we start the Mexican American war. In 2021, very few people know much about this because it was short. 1846 to 1848. Spoiler alert, we win this shit fast. Two years. We won a whole war. All of California, all of Texas in two years when information took two to three weeks to get there and it's chaos and there's nuts and there's... And it's easy, I think, to look back in history and consider it a foregone conclusion and really sum it up with, we fought Mexico, it was easy, we won. Which is a fair... But there are some real fun, fuckable little nuggets in there. And I want to, I want to drop some on you now. So (laughs) here's one of my favorites is a guy named Fremont. There's Fremont stuff all over America. I used to live on Fremont Avenue. There's free, you know, Fremont Fremont Street in Vegas, Fremont everywhere, almost always probably named after this guy. He put a little accent mark. It was Fremont, but he made that up. He was born Freeman. He was a bastard child. He decided to make it Fremont. So you can say whatever you want. Fremont works for me. Um, So this guy, Fremont, is kind of a rough and tumble Wild West guy. And um, he falls in love with a 16-year-old girl named Jessie, who happens to be the daughter of a very powerful Washington, D.C. politician named Benton. Benton was on the Princeton when it blew up. Oh, somebody told him to move back a little so he'd get a better view. And that's the only reason he's not dead. So he's very connected and very in all these politics. He's influenced. He's called the old bullion. We don't have time to get into (laughs) Benton, but he's very powerful, very connected. He's got this hot 16 year old daughter and Fremont falls in love with her. And so Benton goes, no, you are going to map the West. (laughs) Um, but before he goes he secretly marries jesse in a secret ceremony so now benton's like fuck all right so he gives him a lot of resources and helps him go map the west and jesse is an excellent writer and very smart and very connected in washington and so she starts writing these beautiful dramatic accounts of his adventures in the west and he becomes famous and they both become famous. Like, you having a party, girl. You got to invite Jesse and Charles. You know, the, the Fremont's got to come. He basically maps the area between the Rocky Mountains and the Sierra Nevada. I mean, gorgeous, beautiful, wild, adventurous, exciting. Yeah. And America is hard for it. America is here for it. Already wagon trains. Mm-hmm. are heading west. Like, that That flow has has started. It, it hasn't hit its peak yet, but it's definitely definitely going. So this guy, Fremont... At the point time we're talking about now, Oregon's been one, but California is a big question, and Texas is a question. Now, Oregon disputedly ours. We shared it with Britain. We paid them. We made a treaty. Now it's ours. Texas, even arguably, we had it in the Louisiana Purchase, but we did sell it to Spain. But then there was our Santa Ana signed that thing. Yeah, we kind of have Texas. California is a straight up invasion. We have no right to California. No conceivable right to California. It is 100% Mexico's. <laughs> like there is like us going to get California is just kind of like, well, we're what? already at war with Mexico and we figure like, let's just steal your baby too. In the let's world. Just yeah, go yeah. hard. Yeah. <laughs> Fremont is in California and he's now famous and his father-in-law is a politician and people know who he is and he, he's a dick. He starts to really overstep his boundaries. And one night, history is full of these interesting stories. One night, we're not sure why. Fremont and this fellow General uh, Gillespie get it in their heads. We don't. Was there a message? Was it a rumor? We don't know. That there's this Mexican guy in Sonoma that is a revolutionary, is trying, hates America, whatever. And they're going to go get him. So they go to the city of Sonoma and find this guy, and they kidnap him in the middle of the night out of his house. He has a very loose military connections. He is not anti-America. It is completely misplaced. They take him. They take the house. They take the village. And one guy gets this big piece of white cloth, slaps a green stripe and a white stripe and a picture of a bear in the middle with a star. And guess what? It's where the California Republic flag comes from. The first California Republic flag was scrawled on a white piece of fabric that day. And Fremont and Gillespie are like, we own California. The war in California has begun. Like, it's on. And they've now got this armed group. In the meantime, a Navy Commodore, Sloat, 
is sailing on the West Coast along California, and he has orders from Polk to have a nice, reasonable conversation with the governor of Monterey. We're going to start the negotiations. We're going to be cool. We're Uh going to try to see if we can't get California. And on the way, he hears that Fremont has, like, taken Sonoma. And he's like, okay, well, you know, Fremont is the son-in-law of this guy. He probably has orders. It takes three weeks for messages to come. He probably knows something I don't. I'll go ahead and take Monterey instead of the... So when he gets into Monterey, he's like, mine, bitch. And the governor of Monterey was like... We're going to talk. I talk. (laughs) Yeah. I had no idea. He's like, I'm not... Oh, okay. Like, I don't have an army. So he flees. He's like... I didn't know this was a fight, and he flees south. And Sloat's like, son of a bitch. And now word comes to Washington, we've got Sonoma, that's north of San Francisco, we've got Monterey, like California, like it's on, we've pretty much secured California. So at this point, Fremont comes down to Monterey, and Sloat's like, hi, hey, that was crazy, so what, what does Polk want us to do now? And realizes quickly that Fremont's a loose cannon was not authorized to do what he did, did not have orders to do what he did, that he, Sloat, may well have violated his own orders by assuming that this other action, and so he just is like, okay, um, ooh, how about your governor of this territory now? I have to go. <laughs> Literally, Sloat. My phone's ringing. Yeah. Did you hear that? I have to go right now. And so Sloat leaves, and there's Fremont and Gillespie hanging out right there in California. It gets so bad. Fremont and Gillespie are such cunts that he's court-martialed. Fremont is court-martialed. They finally get word of, like, what he's doing and what he's claiming. And even though it's good, because, like, he did kind of take stole loose cannon. We can't. Like, it's violent. So they court-martial him. And so he said, but he doesn't know it. They start to ride back. You know, you can imagine the long ride back from California to Washington, D.C. on horseback. And they get a, a ways, and they tell him, you're under arrest, by the way. You know, when we get to D.C., you're going to stand court-martial. Which he does, and it's all very dramatic in D.C. Just, like, eats it up. And poor little Jesse's like, why? But all of this is to say... Yes, we won the Mexican-American War in two years, but it was not a noble war fought against a worthy opponent. The Mexicans were so poor, and everything was crazy. They had an emperor for a minute, and then the emperor was deposed, and then a president, and then a corrupt president, and then fighting and infighting and civil war, and the people were so poor. They were very loyal to their families and their villages, but their generals abused them to the point where uh, Ulysses S. Grant future president, said that the Civil War was a punishment from God on the United States for the unjust way that we fought against Mexico. And like he said, like a human being is punished for their bad deeds in their life, United States is reaping um, pain for what we've inflicted, which is not... And a lot of the seeds of the Civil War being planted at this time, in fact, Robert E. Lee is part of the engineering party that takes Mexico City when we ultimately seal the deal. So there's a lot of like important people in the Civil War are starting to get their stripes now in yeah. the Mexican-American War. One big guy, of course, Abraham Lincoln. So one of the things that James K. Polk said to start the Mexican-American War was they have now shed American blood on American soil. When he's talking about that area in the Rio Grande. And Abraham Lincoln is the one who stands up in the Senate at, finally and says, you know, you said that. Can you please point to the American soil Oh. where the blood was shed. And it was like <gasps> like a gasp yeah. through the chamber because that's the sticking point, right? And it was an American, not a Mexican, who's saying it. So there were already like the fractures, uh, the indisputable fighting among Americans was well established by the end of this. But you know what? All that? Somebody else's problem, says Polk. Because <laughs> <Okay? laughs> by 1848, he got Oregon, girl. He got Texas to the Rio Grande, girl. He got all of California, and I have spared you the fact that he also got all that tax, that boring tax shit that he wanted, is set. He did every single thing he said he was going to do, everything he wanted to do. He did say, to your point, I am a one-term president. I will not run again. And he is out. He can't wait. He's so tired. He's overworked. He's, he barely sleeps. Sarah's really worried about him. He's going to go. I forget who his vice president was. Do you know? Um, Dallas. Okay. He didn't do much. Okay. Didn't yeah. He was again. just chilling. He was he next was to the chilling. Prius. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the sidecar yeah. to the Vespa. Um, the last thing that Polk gets on his way out of office, this is fascinating. This is drama. This is like <laughs> season finale ender, right? Polk's fucking packing up. He and Sarah are going to hit the road. And he gets this mysterious box delivered to him from the West. A box that has been brought all the way in the utmost secrecy, people have gone to extraordinary pains to hide that this box exists, let alone what's in it. 
Polk gets this super secret. We have to show you something, Mr. President. This is very, 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 very important. Even I know you're about to leave office, but we really think you need it, right? They open the box and it's full of gold. There's gold in them hills, Meryl. <laughs> we didn't know about the gold. In oh. California, we didn't know about the gold. And neither did Britain, which is a big deal because they would have fought much differently. And neither did Mexico because they would have fought differently and they wouldn't have taken the 15 million that we ultimately offered them for California if they had known about all of the gold. So who knows when we knew about the gold, but it was definitely important that nobody else knew about it because it was going to fuck up the way we did everything regarding this, right? Yeah. The gold, of course, spurs that wagon train west Mm -hmm. in extraordinary ways. Polk's term ends in 1848, and you know the 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers, is in reference to the people, the incredible boom, the explosion in the number of people that came into California in 1849, in large part because of what was in that box. Wow, that's so interesting. It was the the Bitcoin era back in the day. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Fascinating, right? So Polk uh, closes up that box. What a weird time for him to end. Yeah. That is like a season finale where yep. it's like. And he high fives the new president who is none other than Zachary Taylor. Mr. Picking a fight on the Rio Grande himself. A wig. A oh, wig really? General who, and Polk, he had a hard time. He pointed a lot of these generals out there during this war where a lot of them were wigs. And he was like, fuck, I'm just basically creating a bunch of people that are going to run for president. But ah, I'm not, I'm not going to run again. Mm-hmm. So, you know. Um, but yeah, so Zachary Taylor's like, Polculator, right? <laughs> and uh, James and Sarah get on a boat to go home. He's so tired. He looks it too. I mean, I got this guy, his mullet's all gray. <laughs> He's real skinny, doesn't look good. And um, they're looking forward to getting better. And so they decide to take a tour through the Deep South on paddle boats, steamboats, trains, and paddle boats. How romantic, right? Yeah. Um, except for all the cholera. <laughs> Ooh. Oh, so it's... Uh, cholera, not to put too fine a point on it, if you're not familiar, it is a very highly contagious disease um, that is often transmitted via dirty water, yeah. dirty food, and basically you shit and puke until you dehydrate and die. It is a horrible way to go. Dehydration is ultimately the way you die, but it is because your body evacuates to this dramatic extent. Not a good way to go. As you and I record this, it's 2021. We are living with vivid memories of COVID and the pandemic, how it emerged. The whole thing, this is ripples of this. There's this rumor, everyone's getting sick. It's this crazy disease. We don't know how it transmits. This city is, I mean, and he's on this boat and they're like going into cities oh. where people are like the cholera is in this city. And he doesn't want to, he doesn't want to go. Like he's nervous enough about it because he's always had gastrointestinal yeah. stuff. Like just aside from his scrotum, he's always had a bad tummy. And, um, but he can't re- handle the rebuke of not glad handing these people who have supported him and paid and they're throwing parties and the president is coming to our house. I mean, you have to go right about two weeks in. He is so fucking sick. Two or three people die on their boat along the way. It's a couple weeks in. In Paducah, Kentucky, they finally have to call in a physician because he is so sick. And they think he's going to die. But then he gets a little better. He, he bounces back. They get home. They get to back to their house in Tennessee. Sarah and, and James, they've, built, they've got this house ready. They're very excited to retire. He even gets a little better. He kind of gets some furniture set up. And then boom. <gasps> He dies. Oh no. 103 days into his retirement. I'm getting strong Oregon Trail vibes from this too, because my characters would always die from cholera. I'd be like, no, little Timmy. Like, yeah, you were so close. We just hunted a squirrel for you. Well, and it's real. And you know, uh, Zachary Taylor dies of cholera 16 months into his presidency, giving us Fillmore. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Polk is dead. Sarah is a widow, a childless widow. She wears black and mourns him for the rest of her life, 42 years. Really? She just walks around in a black dress. During the Civil War, though, there's this interesting sort of respect for her. Like when the Union soldiers come into Nashville, come into Tennessee where they live, um, they ransack and burn every house, and they don't take Sarah's house. It is a fascinating history, Meryl, and I am really grateful that I had an opportunity to jump in on this stuff, man. Wild West, gold rush, war, 
so fuckable. Very fuckable. That you, I'm so amazed with you. <laughs> and I'm just, I, I feel like my mind has just watched a movie. I hope everyone has enjoyed this the way that I have too. And something you and I talked about really briefly during our break is I I noted to you how cool this may be to be able to go back to history and with, with each episode you're looking at something from a different angle. And you had mentioned that this was right around the time that Mary Shelley was born, right? And so it's like, it's so crazy to think of, like as people are listening to your episodes to be like, okay, this was happening that we hear about, but also this was happening. And so I think that's the cool part of history is it's like each time it, we're watching a new, we're watching it from a new point of view. Oh, I love that. And it really, you, you just, you just sprinkled glitter. I'm like, <laughs> one of my favorite things about history is the web. And yeah, yeah. As you pointed out, Mary Shelley was born in 1797 and James K. Polk was born in 1795. Wow. It's so crazy so, to think of the two. Cause Mary Shelley yeah. to me seems so like ancient. Mm -hmm. you I know. know. I mean, and I so at the time that she is, you know, smoking opium and having a three way at the Villa Diodate with Lord Byron, um, you know, the Princeton is exploding and, and part of, part of, um, why Mary and Mary Shelley hated the colonies. She really turned on the colonies. A lot of, of English revolutionaries did a lot of French revolutionaries did a lot of Mexican revolutionaries did because of what the, Uni the, the United States was doing to the native American people, to, uh, enslaved Africans and to the Mexicans, they were such bullies and they had so immediately, apparently surrendered this independent revolutionary spirit to imperialism, colonialism, expansionist, that um, it just left a bad taste in their mouths. And, and people like Mary Shelley were just throwing up the bird across the yeah. coast, you know? So interesting. I hope someone, I hope you do the gold rush to like pick up where we left off in a different episode. Oh, well, I should. Well, you know, to that end, anyone who has a suggestion. Yeah. Um, I am very excited about the guests uh, that we have, and I'm always looking for new folks to come in. We are going to be doing some live episodes yeah. coming up, which I'm very, very excited about. And uh, of course, you can always find out more. Oh, oh. And if you're just like, I can't stand it. I got to see this mullet. Yeah. I want to see these maps. I got you, girl. You go to uh, Hilf Podcast on Instagram or on Facebook, and you will see maps and mullets and pictures of all of these uh, adorable people. You can also go there, of course, and like, like and it. subscribe and share and rate and all of those things. And then I will do my part and just keep fucking this history. Mm. Um, Meryl Klimau, I love you to death. I and I'm so you. grateful that you came. Uh, we are going to catch up with you real soon. I know it. Thank you. Hey, thanks for letting me polk you, listeners. It was a real pleasure. And I'm also over the moon, really, because there is an increasing lot of you tuning into each episode. And for that, I am so grateful. I'm seeing new listeners popping up all the time from all over the world, and it is really curling my toes. <laughs> Your downloads, likes, shares, they all help us do, you know, this, more of this just with better snacks. <laughs> um, our next HILF is a very special holiday episode in which my guest is the H I like to F the most. He's my real life husband, Andrew Melby, and he assigned me the spine tingling HILF Krampus. Oh, he is a long-horned, long-tongued, yuletide devil who exists to drag children to hell. Krampus, that is, not my husband. <laughs> oh, we have a blast, and we'd be honored to have you tune in. The episode goes up on December 22nd. New episodes of Hilf every other Wednesday. And until next time, this has been History I'd Like to Fuck with Don Brody. I'm Don Brody, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>